with the scientific revolution, we're going to start with the geocentric theory versus the heliocentric theory. And I realize that we are having to kind of rewind in time because we've got all the way to the absolutism. We all got all the way to Peter the Great. Uh, we established St. Petersburg and all that stuff. And that's 150 years after uh, Copernicus. So we do have to kind of go backwards to go forwards again. But um, the geocentric theory is going to be the framework by which the Western tradition has decided that both the Judeo-Christian tradition and the Greco-Roman tradition both agree that the geocentric theory is correct. And so that becomes, for them, for that period, for their worldview, that is truth. Okay. Um, as we go forward and get into the second semester, when we get to stuff like existentialism and, and things like that, um, one of the key components of Nietzsche's existentialism, he says something on the accord, and I'm going to paraphrase here, that truth is not true because it is true, but rather because of its antiquity, which means what? Oldness. Yeah, if something is really old, that makes it true. Well, that was the geocentric theory. The idea that, oh, in the Bible it says that the sun stood still and the moon stayed. That means that if the sun has to stand still, that it was moving. And what Galileo will eventually say, and, and you guys read this in your documents, he'll say, look, that was an observational problem. It wasn't that the Bible was necessarily wrong. It was that the person that was writing it thought that they were watching the sun stand still, and that's what they wrote down. And Galileo's like, look, I'm looking through a telescope. I can see what's happening. I can observe it. God made me this way to be able to observe it. Why can't I just tell you what God's showing me? That's what he's going to basically make that argument. And of course, the Catholic Church is like, uh-uh. And why do you think the Catholic Church is saying, uh-uh? What is their, yeah? Well, obviously, the, the heretic thing is convenient. It's like, yeah, you're a heretic. It's easy to... But the biggest problem is Luther, is the Protestants, right? You've already created a group of people, and a, and a number of people are going away from the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church is sitting there going, we can't handle another disaster. And at this point, if we're wrong about the whole universe thing, what else are we wrong about? And so the Catholic Church is basically saying, no, we just can't do this. Now, one thing I need you to write down in your notes, and this is incredibly important because I think people start to mess up the difference between the scientific revolution and new physics, which is much later. New physics is in the 20th century. The scientific revolution is going to start right around the 1550s, uh, maybe a little earlier if you count some of the Copernicus stuff, and maybe a little later if you get to Galileo and Newton and guys like that. But the scientific revolution is kind of somewhere around 15, I don't know, we'll call it 1550 to about 1700. Now, obviously, there's some before, there's some after, and that's fine. What is one significant difference between the scientific revolution and new physics? I'll tell you. So the scientific revolution, this is where a lot of people come into this class and they actually kind of have a, a misconception of what's actually happening. I get a lot of people that'll say this thing and it's wrong. The scientific revolution was meant to disprove God. That's not correct. The scientific revolution was meant to prove God's existence. Here's the, that's a very different statement, right? The scientists were mostly very, very Catholic or very, very Protestant. 
And what they thought they were doing, you're going to want to write this down. This is kind of the goal of the scientific revolution. They thought they were revealing God's handiwork. They thought they were looking at what God had created and showing other people how it worked. So when Newton does, Newton was incredibly devout. He was a very, very Christian man. But he believed his laws of motion and the, the physics that he will contribute to was just revealing what we will eventually call a mechanized world. In your notes, I do want you to put down uh, maybe underneath the two theories here. Um, that term, mechanized world. The concept of a mechanized world is eventually what guys like Ben Franklin and many of our founding fathers that were deists believed was kind of the clockmaker theory of the universe. They're guys that believed in a God, but didn't necessarily believe in it, uh, subscribe to a traditional religion. But what they believed was that God kind of fashioned the world in this very organized fashion, like a clock, wound it up, and then let it go and do its thing. And the scientists were sitting there going, trying to describe how the clock worked. And that's what they believed with this whole concept of a mechanized world. Now, obviously, when we get to new physics in the 20th century, guys like Einstein's theory of relativity and things like that start to throw a bit of a monkey wrench in a traditional mechanized world. And guys, the, the existentialists and many of them that were incredibly atheists, the, the existentialists, will also kind of try to say, no, that's not how it works. It's very different. But we're not there yet, okay? Early on in the scientific revolution, the whole basis of it was to actually describe this world that was created by a, a god, okay? Um, and so when we talk about the scientific revolution, don't fall into the trap of trying to say the scientific revolution was meant to uh, destroy the church and things like that. Now, there is times where people are allowing scientists to come up with new concepts that will deteriorate what? The power of the Catholic Church. Specifically, many of the Protestants were actually very pro-science because they saw it as adding to what they saw as already the deterioration of the power of the Catholic Church, that kind of monolithic power. So you don't, uh, I'm putting it this way because I don't want you to fall into a, a bit of a trap because if you do that on an essay, you're going to show the person who's reading it that you kind of don't understand the history um, and how it worked. Remember that history is always a progression. So people are starting to think differently over time. Um, and early on, the majority of these scientists are incredibly religious and actually saw themselves as doing God's work to reveal science. And, and that's what Galileo says in the documents that you guys read as well. Now, the first theory here is going to be the Judeo-Christian version. It gets reaffirmed by Aristotle with what we call the Aristotelian view. And because the Bible and the smartest guy from the Greeks, or at least one of them, both believe the same thing, that will be now truth. Again, truth through antiquity, not necessarily reality. But that will be their truth. Okay? Then Copernicus shows up. And Copernicus was actually a Polish cleric, meant that he was part of the Catholic Church. <clears throat> and what he thought he was doing was, again, revealing God's handiwork. It's on the next slide. Um, and he will write on the revolutions of the he heavenly spheres. And he will not publish his work 
until the very end of his life when he was, knew he was dying because he was afraid of the fact that they were already in a Protestant Reformation. Look at when he dies. 1543. That's before the Peace of Augsburg, but after Luther. So he's living and publishing and creating his book during the Protestant Reformation, and he's afraid, as probably he should be, being a traditional Catholic, that what he's going to produce might further deteriorate some of the power of the Catholic Church. But what he will observe, because he's doing this mostly through observation, is the idea that maybe the earth is not the center, that the sun is probably the center, and they're, we're kind of revolving around that. But he doesn't go real deep. Then, I'm going to skip through this next part because I kind of already said it. Um, he was a Polish cleric, uh, did want to demonstrate God's creation through his science, uh, had issues with Ptolemy's uh, math in regards to the geocentric theory, and then eventually doesn't publish until the very end of his life. And then he's like, fine, I'll publish. And quite honestly, very few people read him other than a couple of scientists. Very few people much cared what Copernicus had to say at the time. Then uh, you get to a guy named Tycho Brea, who actually was uh, the, the master in between this, this relationship with Kepler. And Kepler will actually take over for Brea once Brea dies. But they're the ones who do the math. And they, they actually realize that these planets are going through or around the sun, but they're going in elliptical fashion. Why elliptical rather than circular? What is the science behind this? I'm not a scientist, but I can at least sort of describe this if no one else wants to take a... Uh, yeah, momentum and, and gravity, essentially. So um, because it, it basically what happens with planets going around the sun is you get what we call basically a slingshot effect. So the farther you go away from the sun, the gravity pulls you back in and then slingshots you back the other way and then has to pull you back in again and then do the same and the same. And so you really go in more of an oval than you do a circle. If you were in a perfect circle, it'd be more like these, you know, tracks or axes that were just kind of floating around, which is not what's happening. We're actually getting flung around the sun um, rather than just kind of floating in a perfect circle. But they realize this as they do the math that, oh, there's a reason why certain planets are really far away at certain times and then really close at other times because they're getting flung around also. Um, and it's not as consistent as we thought it was. Um, and then once Galileo, and one of the big contributors to this is obviously the printing press, because even though the Catholic Church is putting all of this immediately on the index of forbidden books, because they're afraid of anything at this point when it comes to knowledge that might deteriorate their power, um, anyone that's writing anything that might possibly cause people to question the power of the Catholic Church is going to get thrown on the index of forbidden books, even if they're devout Catholics that wrote them. Um, like a Copernicus, like a Galileo. Um, and we get to Galileo. He, he, of course, also was an incredibly devout Catholic, so much so that he was more willing to accept house arrest than eternal damnation by getting excommunicated. And, and I think that kind of furthers some of the concept that many of these scientists were more afraid of their eternal souls than they were the observations and science that they were doing. Um, if Galileo cared more about the science than he did his eternal soul, he would have just said, no, I won't recant. But he does recant and accepts house arrest um, for much of his life. 
And you guys read the, the letter to the Duchess where he tries to make his argument that, hey, God made me a certain way, gave me the ability to see. Um, you know, he's observing through a telescope. He's able to actually chart what's happening with the planets. <coughs> um, and he, he comes up with what is a relatively accurate version of the heliocentric theory, what we call the heliocentric theory. And when he does Starry Messenger and eventually publishes, it, it's very quickly shot down by the Catholic Church, very quickly put on the Index of Forbidden Books. He's brought on trial um, for his discoveries. And his biggest argument will again be, look, we should not be basing our ideas on one guy's observation of him stopping the sun. And what Galileo basically says was a miss observation of his. Um, instead, if God gave me the ability to build a telescope and observe the stars and do all of these things, it's because he wants me to do them, not, not the other way around. Um, and that's the argument that Galileo tries to make. Now, obviously, no one really agrees with him, especially in his Catholic world at the time, until later when Florence is like, yeah, he's really brilliant. He's awesome. Um, but that's when he's dead. Usually that happens. But um, the person who, and the reason that this is all important in the framework of the scientific revolution is you also have an, in your notes, you can put this down, put, put Newton down. Now, I don't have him on the slide deck just because I, I don't want to get too deep into the science itself. But what I do want you to put down with Newton is that his laws of gravity, his laws of physics that he comes up with are all trying to describe, make sure to write this down, Newton's laws are trying to describe the mechanized world God created. That is his purpose. So in his mind, again, very similar to what the deists believed later, guys like Ben Franklin and others, that this clockmaker theory, the clock is made perfectly, it has structure and it goes because of a certain way that it's supposed to go. Many of these scientists are thinking, I'm just describing the mechanism. That's the whole concept of a mechanized world. Now, this is important for the Enlightenment, and the bridge to this is that if, if you guys read the document, What is Enlightenment? by Kant, what was his main point? What is the purpose of Enlightenment? It comes to what the, the whole Enlightenment will be called later by others. We call it the Age of Reason. You can write this down. The Enlightenment equals the Age of Reason. <laughs> now, if it is the Age of Reason, then we are dismissing the Age of what? Superstition. So we are no longer just saying, oh, yeah, the plague is because the planets are aligning weird and, you know, that's causing plague. Or, oh, yeah, definitely the Jews are poisoning the wells. That's why we're all getting sick. And like all of the superstitious ways of thinking of the past are no longer applicable. It's now based on reason. That is the enlightenment. Now, how many of you have taken geometry? Yes. What do you start out geometry with? I, at least I did when I was in high school. Proofs. The concept of proofs. Remember proofs? Like this proves this that proves this that proves this. Proofs. You're like, I didn't do that. I do CPM. No, I'm, I do something else. Sorry, shots are not necessary. 
Um, now, back when I did math, we did proofs. And what proofs are is basically the age of re it's, it's reason. If this happens and it does this and it gets to this, then yes, it's accurate. You got there from academic reason. If it's just like the planets are aligning and we think that's why, that's not reasonable, that's superstition. And so if science is based on this concept of reason and guys like Bacon and Descartes come up with the scientific method, an early version of the scientific method, you can put that too in your notes if you want, Bacon and Descartes and their scientific method, which is very similar to what you probably learned in elementary school or something like that. Come up with an idea, test your idea, figure out if you are correct. If you're correct and it can, you can test it multiple ways, then yeah, you can come up with some kind of a thesis. Um, but if not, you got to go back and hypothesize again, right? You did something like this before in science? Yes, sir. Th this basic concept of scientific proofs is how a lot of these guys are now thinking. And the Enlightenment thinkers are going to say, okay, if science is based on reason, then why isn't government also based on reason? And why isn't it that people and natural rights should also be based on this mechanized world? If the world has a mechanical framework created by an, a creator, that's why when in our uh, Declaration of Independence, God-given natural rights, that concept is an enlightenment thought that if God gave the world a mechanical creation structure, then human nature should also have that same structure and those natural rights should be a component of it. So the concepts of life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness, what we called it, which was the very Disneyland version. Yes. We decided that those actually came from us, from this mechanical world that we were now diagnosing. The whole concept of modern democracy is built on the idea of natural rights that are reasonable based on a mechanized world. That's why when you get to the 20th century and you have the new physics and people are starting to say things are relative, people are like, is government relative too? Should everyone have rights? Maybe we should join fascism. Sounds like a good idea. We, we start actually experimenting with new government systems that are not based on natural rights, that are actually based on taking away other people's natural rights to benefit us. Because those systems, if, you're, if everything's relative anyway, what does it matter? So if you go back again to the scientific revolution, the concept of the enlightenment and democracy and things like that, natural rights, stem from this concept that everything's mechanized, that it's all a system. Okay. Now, we've talked about Hobbes before. I tend to introduce him during the English Civil War, so you don't need to write down all of this stuff. But remember, Hobbes' biggest concept is this concept of a social contract, right? And what he believed is that without a social contract, us humans would devolve back into the state of nature and just start taking advantage of each other, right? But with a social contract upheld by what? A king, a singular ruler, then in his mind, people could live in a relative harmony. Is it perfect? No. Is it the best we could do? In his mind, yes. Now, after Hobbes, you'll have another guy named Locke. And Locke comes up with 
his concepts of life, liberty, and property, which of course we, we ripped off and called life, liberty, and Disneyland. But he believed that the divine right of kings, much like many of the Protestants also believed that the divine right of kings was basically nonsense. That it actually came from man wanting a king. In the Old Testament, the Israelites actually go to uh, the prophet at the time and basically say, look, we need a king. Why don't we have a king? And then they are given Saul as a king. They weren't originally given a king. And so many of the Protestants and many of the Enlightenment thinkers are sitting there going, no, kings are actually unnatural. They're, they're made by man. Not having a king is more natural. That becomes part of this whole concept of the Enlightenment. Um, what Locke also came up with, and this is the reason why we spent, I don't know, however long talking about the triplets that one day, is tabula rosa. Okay? And the reason is because in Locke's mind, man is born a blank slate. Okay? I know we've talked about the nature versus nurture thing before. We talked a little bit about how the, you, know, you experiment with these three triplets that have vastly different experiences with different households, all kind of going around the concept of nature versus nurture. But what Locke believed was you, when you're born, are a blank slate and your experiences make you who you are. And if that is the case, which is his underlying concept, if that is the case, then I have to teach you how to be democratic. You're not just going to wake up in democracy. And that's part of the reason why when you look at places like Iraq that we took over and tried to remember, Iraq was called what? Operation Iraqi Freedom. And then we were going to gift them with the democracy thing. The problem is, they were not exactly a system that was ready for democracy. You have to train people have to, how to live in a democracy. It's not something you are just inherently born with. And that's what Locke believed. He said, look, yes, if you live in a system where no one teaches you how to democracy, I know that's bad grammar, never teaches you how to do this thing, how are you going to actually do it? And then eventually we get to Rousseau. And what Rousseau will say is, look, Hobbes, you're right. We should have a social contract. People should enter into their social contract so that we have the most, what he called positive liberty, meaning that we have the most amount of liberty that we can have without hurting someone else's liberty. We should have what he will call the general will, what benefits everyone relatively equally, meaning that I don't just get to do whatever I want if it hurts other people or it puts other people in danger. So he has these ideas that the social contract is about creating positive liberty and the general will. But then he says it only will work if I train people how to do it. And that's what he calls civic virtue. This down here. Did I just cross it out? Civic virtue. So in a democracy, what we are doing right now in public education is creating civic virtue. We're showing you how to live in a democratic system. Now, you could definitely argue that we've made some mistakes lately. The biggest mistake that we've made in public education is we're not training people how to debate anymore. Not the right way. Because debate is actually where you're able to disagree with someone in a civilized fashion and at the end of the day, come to some form of a resolution. Or if you still disagree with someone, come back the next day with a way to actually argue your point. Not to just turn off the noise, which we have now done. We've decided now, instead of actually debating people, 
that instead we just push our narrative and turn off everything else. That's not the same. And it does not result a positive outcome or positive liberty. Instead, what it does is it forces people to dislike each other if they even see each other in the same room. And that's a problem. Because truthfully, to create a, an actual democratic society that's going to work for the most amount of people, you have to be able to disagree in a positive way. Understanding that at the end of the day, it's about the general will rather than just what your will is. And that's the problem that we are currently seeing. And it's getting worse because our technology is making it worse for us because it's designed that way. Our technology is designed to make every click that you make on your phone hone your position on everything so that by the time you get to your Instagram page or whatever, your Twitter feed or whatever it is, it's exactly what you wanted it to be. And that's the opposite of actually having a positive liberty where people are able to see other people's sides of you or our point of view. Now, this matters because this is the framework in which democracy is experimented with. This is the framework in which the American system is created. It's the framework in which the French system failed. It's the framework that really the English system tried to deal with. And it's the framework of democracy in the Western world. Now, there's a lot to learn from this section, I, I find. Um, and one of the things that I wanna make sure to kind of connect for you is this is also where economic liberalism comes from. Now, economic liberalism in another term is just capitalism. Um, so I'm going to show you what capitalism is. And I'm going to try to explain it to you um, in a way that is very common sense, because to be fair, it is pretty common sense. Um, now, I'm assuming that you read the Adam Smith excerpts that I gave you in your documents. Did you get those or no? They're in there. Uh, I'm going to go over a couple of them with you because there's a couple of things that are really important for Smith and understanding basic capitalism. First of all, I would put a little star next to economic liberalism. That is the concept that we as humans should have the right to make our own choices and not have someone else tell us how to deal with the economy. Meaning that no government agency should come in and say, hey, you have to do this. You have to um, create this. You have to buy this, whatever it is. No government tells you you have to do that. You get to make that choice. That's economic liberalism. Now, what Adam Smith is doing is he, he is diagnosing the success of the British and the Dutch who are kind of experimenting with these economic systems relatively early as opposed to many other systems which were far more mercantilist. Now, mercantilism is much closer to communism than capitalism is because mercantilism is a government-run economic system. Now, I'm not saying that mercantilism and capitalism and communism are the same. They're not. They're, they're a little different. Um, and we will explain that when we get to communism later. But here's the reason that capitalism is the most dynamic system ever created. Even Karl Marx, who came up with most of the concepts of early communism, believed that, that capitalism was the most dynamic system ever created. He actually states in Das Kapital that it is a dynamic system. He just doesn't like what it does. Um, and that becomes his biggest issue. And we'll talk about that later when we get there. But 
here's why capitalism works. If I am a mom and pop shop in the middle of Novato, uh, I'll make one up since I'm podcasting right now. Uh, let's just say I make, I'm a bakery. I'm gonna call it uh, Colton and Ruby's Bakery. Um, and I decide that for Christmas, I'm going to make the most amazing red velvet cake of all time. And it's going to be something that everyone is going to buy. And so all I do is I just produce all red velvet cake just for Christmas, and then no one buys it. Now, am I gonna do it again next year? No, 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 no. Why? Because capitalism is adapt or die. If you don't adapt, you will die. Did you know that more than 90% of new businesses fail? And the reason is, honestly, that's a good thing. Because if all businesses were successful, it would actually just make it so that all businesses were very, very just meh. But the reason that having businesses fail is a good thing is because you as the consumer is the person who is choosing the stuff you want to buy. And if you just have a bunch of stuff available all the time, and some pe- no one would make much money at all, actually. The only way to make money in capitalism, this is what Adam Smith realized, is that you making money, a wage, is based on what? Your value. So if your value is high, it's because people what? Want what you are giving them. So let's just think about it in today's terms. If you are a the best computer programmer in the world, do you think you have high value? Yes. Do you think you have high wage? Yes. No matter what, you will. Because your value is so high. If you are a brain surgeon, you have high value. And that's why people pay you a high wage. If you are a minimum wage worker, you have very little value because you do not contribute something more than anyone else could. Meaning that if you're a high school student, you could do the same job that someone who's 30 or 40 could do in that same job. And that's why you get paid a low wage. So the wages that you are paid are supposed to be linked to your value. Okay. Now, this is why it works as far as the mom and pop sharp is concerned. And this is why adapt or die is a thing. In his system, he believes in the invisible hand. Now, the invisible hand is like this. In your documents, he talked about the butcher. I'll give it to you in the mom and pop shop version. If I am a mom and pop shop or Colton and Ruby's bakery on Grand Avenue, and I am trying to make sure that I actually make enough money, I don't have to be told that I need to make things people want to buy. I know I need to make things people want to buy because I want to eat too. I want to have a roof over my head and I want to make sure that I can get clothing for my kids. And so I make, I am absolutely in touch with every single person that comes and frequents my store. I mean, think about uh, Redwood Bagel, who's been here forever. Henry, I know Henry really well. Henry's been the owner of Redwood Bagel I don't know, forever, in, in my mind. His son works there. It's a family shop. Um, he knows his customers really well. And in a capitalist system, 
the concept is the producer, someone who's making the bagels, knows what his people want. He's not going to just be like, let's change the menu that's been working for 40 years. No. Why would you do that? And this is the problem that Adam Smith had with mercantilism. In a mercantilist system, someone can come in and say, hey, I need you to make this new bagel that everyone's going to eat. And if you try to make it and no one's eating it, and you're like, hey, government, um, no one's eating this bagel. I'm going out of business. They're like, keep making the bagel. We know it's going to work. You're like, no, I know what my consumer needs. And this is the whole concept of the invisible hand. And next to it, I need you to write this down. The invisible hand equals self-interest, is driven by self-interest. I am self-interested that my own fortune, my own wealth, my own money is affected by the people that come in and frequent my shop. And so it is in my best interest, my self-interest that I do it. Not because in, in your document it says, not because of the butcher's benevolence does he do his job, but rather through his own self-interest. Meaning that I'm not sitting there going, free cakes for everyone. I'm saying, no, I have to charge this price because this is what's going to keep me in business. I'm going to make sure I'm producing what you want, but I'm going to do it in a way that's going to be solvent for me because I need to put a roof over my head. Adam Smith says, you don't need to tell anyone to do that. That is invisible. There's an invisible hand that pushes us, our own self-interest, to do these things. No one needs to tell you. The concept of laissez-faire, it's translated in his mind into uh, the government should stay out of business. So that's what I would write down next to laissez-faire. The government should stay out of business. And they're very linked, the concept of the invisible hand in laissez-faire. If the government is telling you what to produce, the government is generally too slow to adapt to changing market conditions. So who do you think should be the one making a decision as far as what to produce? Someone that deals with customers every day or someone that's over here looking at it from other, some other perspective? The person who is closest is going to make the adapt to the changing market the quickest. If somebody way over here is telling you what to do, they cannot adapt day to day to changing market conditions. And that's the problem that he has with government intervention, is that if the government comes in, like, let's take the USSR under Stalin. He goes to these really strong five-year plans. We're all going to build, we're all going to make this. And we, we, I need X amount by this amount. And it got to the point where people were actually just lying and saying, yes, we made that much. He's like, did you actually? Yes. They didn't because they couldn't because it was unreasonable. But... The government is telling them what to produce to the point where after Stalin, they had to completely reorganize their economic system because it was so messed up. Um, generally, governments are too slow to adapt to changing market conditions, whereas the average person can adapt daily if they have to. Now, one of the keys to Smith, and this is really important, no monopolies. Monopolies, in his mind, are probably the worst thing for business. Why? This system is meant to take care of who first? The consumer. 
because the consumer is the one deciding what to buy. If the consumer has one choice, now you have a problem because the consumer has to pick PG&E. They don't get to pick somebody else because there's really only one person providing the product. And so whenever you have competition, the consumer gets the best product at the best price. You can write that down. When there's competition, the consumer gets the best product at the best price. If there was no competition for Apple, they could charge anything they wanted. Now, they already charge ridiculous money for phones and things, right? Like $1,000 for a new phone. If there was no competition, imagine there was no competition to Apple and there was no one else who was going to provide phones. It's just Apple. They could charge anything. And you'd be like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to do that if I want it. And that's what PG&E currently has. And that's part of the reason that PG&E doesn't have any incentive to do things that would benefit us. Now, their only incentive right now to do things to make things safer is what? Lawsuits. I don't want to get sued again. So I should turn off the power and then they're going to get sued for turning off the power too. But the point is, if you don't have competition, you have no reason, no incentive to make your product better. If you do have competition, why do you make your product better? So people will buy it. So this is very basic economic theory. And what Adam Smith will say is, to make capitalism a real thing and to make it last over time, you have to make sure to not have monopolies. Now, there are only a, a few things that he thought were necessary, and that's it if, it, if it's a necessary product, but a, not a profitable thing. So anyone have an example of what that might be? College board. Infrastructure. Meaning that roads, bridges, things like that are not, no one is sitting there going, if I build a road, I will make lots of money. <laughs> Unless you decide that it's going to be a toll road, then yeah, sure. But what governments have to do is go, we need to build roads so that we have an economy. Because if we don't have roads, we don't have an economy. So that infrastructure is something that people aren't just like, let's just build random roads everywhere. No. And to be honest, that is not an incredibly profitable business. Now, the people making the roads obviously make money, but they're making money at the expense of the public, which is the government that basically has to make infrastructure. Does that make sense? So the government pays for the roads. And yes, the people making them make money. But the people making them are not just going to be like, I want to, I'm in a nice mood today. I'm going to make roads to make people's lives better. No, the government has to pay for it because it's not profitable otherwise. Does that make sense? Now, this is the thing that I think we messed up when it comes to capitalism. There's two things. One, uh, corporations is a mistake. Corporations is never what Adam Smith imagine would happen. And that's where you have these mega groups of corporations that just own a bunch of different subsidiary companies that end up essentially being a big monopoly without being a monopoly to the point where they're actually playing monopoly with, with themselves. Because there are a lot of companies that actually own competitors, meaning that they own both groups that compete against each other, which is basically like owning monopoly anyway. Um, that's one significant issue. Um, and the other thing that he probably could not have predicted is the stock market and the effect the stock market would have on uh, producers. Because in today's system, 
our stock market ends up dictating how many companies like PG&E do business. So think of it like this. PG&E is, not, is a monopoly, essentially, where they're the only ones who provide power, and they're a publicly traded company. So they get to decide the price, they get to do what they want, and they have to make sure they make enough money so that their stockholders feel like they're, they're willing to uh, invest in them and make more money. It's kind of the worst of all worlds. It's kind of when capitalism goes wrong. So I think that what we need to do with Adam Smith is just to make sure that we understand that his version is a lot more simplistic than what we currently have. We have a very different version than what Adam Smith probably would have come up with. Now, this is important because, again, this is based on individual economic choice, not the government telling you what to do. I'm going to put one more thing up here for you. These are the major contributions of the Enlightenment. Um, I'll have you write them down. I'm going to quickly just list them. Uh, the scientific method we attribute to Bacon and Descartes. The social contract is both Hobbes and Rousseau. Natural rights, life, liberty, property, etc. Locke. Separation of powers, which is why we have the government that we currently have. That's Montesquieu. Religious freedom, free speech, it's Voltaire. Prisoners' rights is Beccaria. Women's rights is Wollstonecraft. Talk about that more. And then economic liberalism or capitalism is Smith. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to stop this here. And when we come back, we're going to basically be looking at the experiments in the Enlightenment, which is going to be stuff like the French Revolution, um, American Revolution, etc., etc. Wow. 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 Wow.